When I scheduled this interview a number of weeks ago, George Floyd was an unknown. Breonna Taylor's story wasn't known internationally, nor was Tony McDade's. The Black Lives Matter movement had yet to take to the streets. Racism was certainly not a discourse featured heavily on my Facebook timeline at least. Yet here we are. We could say that the year 2020 has served up another dumpster fire of epic proportions, just to follow the natural disasters of the global pandemic we've already lived through. But perhaps this year is a cosmic call to evolve to a higher level, to become a better society made up of better individuals, to confront the unconfrontable, to break the silence that surrounds toxic status quos. It's a time to listen and learn. In the words of Samantha Ball, a Twitter friend, it's time to learn and begin to deconstruct, which is huge. Being able to admit that you might have been wrong is huge and not enough people do it. She went on to say, I love Jesus as much as the next guy, but oh boy, do I struggle deeply with what the church has done in his name. We, the church, thought we were doing good loving work, but we were eradicating and oppressing entire cultures, languages, and spiritual frameworks. We play a significant part in the stolen generation. I love my faith, but I also acknowledge that it has been used as a tool to colonize and silence. I live daily with this tension, but I'd rather my faith be messy and uncomfortable than to walk this world blind. I couldn't agree more with what she said. In fact, messy and uncomfortable is the whole reason Unchurchable was started. We need to grapple with the big questions, and if anything, that's what this cultural moment is giving us an opportunity to do. I'd encourage you to have grace with yourself as you do it. I'd also encourage you to head over to my blog, kitkennedy.com, to check out some words written by my beautiful friend who is a person of colour about her experience of racism in Australia. I'd also encourage you to listen to Carrie Meyer's session on Unchurchable, as she does touch on the spiritual traditions that she, as a person of colour, has had to work to reclaim post-evangelicalism. I'm a whitey. I'm doing my bit to confront my own preconceptions and pass the microphone where I can. I like to think I'm not racist, that I'm an egalitarian person who lifts up people of colour, but I feel the call to go deeper and really make sure that's true. In truth, no matter how uncomfortable this moment makes us feel, I think we all owe that to our brothers and sisters of colour who have faced this hardship all their lives. Phew! Okay, what a preamble to this week's session. I couldn't let it sail past without acknowledging this colossal movement that is sweeping the globe, though. Okay, so I decided to interview my next guest when I read his bio on Twitter. He's a therapist specialising in trauma and sexuality. He has authored four books and countless articles. He lists himself as an LGBTQ and BDSM ally. He's also a Christian, an ordained minister who pastored for 35 years. Our conversation spanned a lot of topics, deconstruction, developing tribe when you've lost community, working through trauma, and how the heck you react to a president who interrupts a peaceful protest with riot police in order to stand out the front of a church for a photo op and hold a Bible upside down. There's a lot in this uh, interview. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm Kit Kennedy, and this is Unchurchable. Hello and welcome to another episode of Unchurchable. I'm Kit Kennedy and when I made an appointment to interview this next guest, um, it was several weeks ago, George Floyd was still alive and still an mm -hmm. unknown and the world had yet to descend into the kind of anarchy that we're seeing um, on our Facebook feeds and on news feeds. I'd intended to talk with Mike Phillips about religious trauma. Mike has been a... Uh, trauma therapist for uh, quite a long time now and he's also mm -hmm. served as a pastor for 35 years. It's a role that he's moved on from to move into other areas but um, the, the role of a trauma therapist is one that he still sticks with to today. I read with interest that he specializes in trauma and sexuality uh, counseling using IFS and EDMR. Now Mike, IFS is internal family systems and EMDR is eye movement uh, desensitization therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder sufferers. Is that correct? correct? That is well, absolutely correct. Wonderful. Okay. Fabulous to have you on the podcast today. First of all, how are you and what is the situation like over in your neck of the woods? So I live in the capital of California, which has uh, presented itself with a lot of intriguing uh, opportunities to observe this firsthand. 
Uh, we're on a lockdown right now, obviously from yeah. COVID-19, but we're also on uh, uh, at eight, we have to be home at eight o'clock every night. Uh, we have a mm -hmm. curfew right now in the city till five mm -hmm. o'clock in the morning. Uh, we have, I have friends that have been shot by rubber bullets. I All was right. downtown, my wife went and got her hair done the other day and we walked down uh, downtown at one part and we we went by one store after another that where the glass had been broken and uh, several places have been looted. So uh, it, it's not just theoretical, it's right in front mm -hmm. of me and it's hard for me not to notice all the details these days. Yeah, now originally our topic was gonna be religious trauma mm -hmm. and I think there is a level of that that we're, we're gonna have to talk about today. Oh, um, yeah. Because, well, for a number of reasons. Firstly, Unchurchable was started um, as a podcast because I myself am going through a process of deconstruction. And to mm -hmm. be honest, I love it. I love the process of thinking about faith and thinking about things we've taken for granted, but also right. grappling with organized religion, the power structures behind it, and, and the intermingling of, you know, um, ulterior motives and and you know, money and power and corruption. And I think there's no better emblem of this than President Trump just this week walking through a peaceful protest with, um, you know, armed police and, and mm -hmm. clearing the path oh that goodness. exacerbated that only to stand in front of a church with a Bible for a cheap mm -hmm. photo op. <laughs> that, that he held upside down for the first two minutes. I know. I was just like, <laughs> even if even if you're like extremely conservative and and are backing Trump, surely holding the Bible upside down would have to be just a little bit of inoffensive in and of itself. Right, right. But I wanted to ask you. I mean, we're talking. We intended to talk about religious trauma, but in your experience mm -hmm. as a trauma therapist, what do we what do we need to know about the weeks and months to come in terms of? trauma vicariously directly right you know what is this new kind of situation presenting us with in terms of trauma well this is an interesting combination of events that are happening obviously the covid virus itself is bringing levels of trauma to people mm -hmm. uh, and and we could go into that but i don't think that that's really what you're looking at uh the no. <laughs> kind of trauma that well maybe i don't know it's a tinderbox hasn't it it's added to the tinderbox what well, it has kind of... <laughs> there's so many levels first of all you've got people who are locked in with abusers and yes. can't go anywhere and that yes. has become a huge thing uh the the amount of people that are trying to call uh trauma hotlines and um abuse hotlines right now is just off the charts mm -hmm. uh but also the the amount of children that are being brought into the emergency rooms with broken arms and head wounds and oh people in er unfortunately are are very aware of certain types of injuries for instance spiral breaks in the arm is almost always a twisting action when a, a someone a, someone who's large or larger than the child has grabbed the arm and th this uh. has gone the 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 rise of this kind of injury is just massive but at the at the same time you have people who are usually women who mm. are locked in with narcissists uh, people mm. with narcissistic personality disorder mm -hmm. and if they had any chance of escaping it's all cut off now yeah that that's one level of trauma secondly i think what's going on in america right now is you've got a large evangelical population that has that is bought into trump for mm. all the reasons i could go into and I, I won't bother but probably more than anything else they bought into trump because they believe that he offered them power essentially yeah. they offered them uh, a place to be able to say we are now on top we mm. now have a say of how uh, the culture wars are going to go yeah. and we also can have a number of uh, people appointed to the supreme court who will rule the way that we want them to rule by the way just not to go too far <laughs> but that's actually backfiring on them uh, oh, because the the, Supre the supreme court uh, chief justice is actually ruling more and more against some of the things that they thought he would rule for but that's another oh, that's um, <laughs> it's nice to see i i i had hoped for it but it, it looks like he actually may may be thinking with his head instead of uh, his religion oh, at goodness. this point 
that's that's amazing. I, you know, I read like read your blog um, before interviewing you, obviously, mm-hmm. and there was so much content on there, and I was like, oh gosh, which thing am I going <laughs> to in- interview you on? So I don't know. Right. Maybe I'll get you on this podcast again in a few months if you're open to it. Um, but I think you, you've highlighted a few interesting things for me here, um, and one of them is an issue that's close to my heart and it's that of dominionism Mm -hmm. so dominionism uh, or seven mountain mandate uh, what some people call it is this evangelical belief that uh, Christians or evangelicals um, are supposed to or they have this God-given mandate to take over what they call the seven uh, seven domains of society so politics family um, business education entertainment um, you know there's two others that I always forget but Yes, media media is a big one. And, and um, education, did you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think yeah. I said education. There's always one. You know, I managed to forget the five senses as well. Like, it's just, you know, when I try to list things, there's always one. But, yeah, <laughs> I, I've blogged on it before, but it's, it's a pseudo... Christian, it's kind of like a pseudo-biblical heresy, like, in my mind, like God told us, or God told Adam and Eve back in the beginning to have dominion over the fish Mm -hmm. of the sea, the birds of the field, but never over each other. And there's this, I think, Christian gullibility that comes with the idea of power or the idea of someone like Trump listening to you. But then when you look at his history and you look at his you know, patterns of policy and stuff like that, you can see something that's quite, count, you know, counterintuitive um, oh, or yes. contraindicated to Christianity. So that that's interesting to me. For people leaving evangelicalism or who've left evangelicalism, surely there's a level of religious trauma that can be triggered mm-hmm. at times like this when we seem to have, um, you know, contradictions in, in places right. like you know, the White House for one, but in churches and, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can have this far right emergence of white supremacy that, um, you know, hopefully we don't see it in churches, you know, but sometimes oh, no. we do. There, it's there. Yeah. So how do people who've been traumatized by church deal with this? How, well, do, we, how do we take in this cultural moment? Right. So... I mean, there's a lot of different uh, solutions that are being proposed. One of the Mm -hmm. first things that I would suggest for anyone who is trying to overcome religious trauma is to uh, cut off. Cut off Mm -hmm. where the trauma is coming from. Obviously, Mm -hmm. if a person's involved in a group that they believe is using their authority and power to uh, Mm -hmm. take control over their life uh, through shame and blame or through uh, legalism or or through a... A dozen other ways the the first rule is always leave and and of course you've probably sh- i i haven't listened to all your all your episodes but i'm sure that you've you've pointed out that's one of the hardest things in the world to do because there's so many structures that keep people within uh Ugh. places where there's a religious abuse but it's still the first thing yeah. that has to happen but yeah. what's going on in america right now for, uh, can i just share a story with Absolutely. somebody and Absolutely. i have permission to share this from mm-hmm. one of my clients but she called me up a couple of days ago and she said this is strange she says i don't believe in in god or the bible anymore uh, and a lot of it has to do because of the religious trauma that she has she said but i can't help thinking of the book of revelation right now that mm. we've got plagues Ooh. and we've got we've <laughs> got uh, the oh. Antichrist sitting, you know, standing in front of a church with the Bible upside down. And, and yeah. she went on and on for about 20 minutes. And she comes from a, a group that's very apocalyptic in, in the way they approach things. And so she yeah. said, Mike, am I wrong? Do I need to go back and tell mom that I'm that that she was right? And I, I quickly jumped in and I said, well, what's your heart telling me? She said, I, I don't want to go back to that crap. And I said, oh. Don't Oof. go back. But but what I'm bringing up with that story is that's what's going to go through people's minds right now. Yeah. When when we go through cognitive dissonance and all of the um, all of the chaos that's going on, the mind wants to go back to something that it remembers as being safe. Now yes. that's strange to to think of a religious group that traumatizes us as being safe, but there were times within that group that they said, if you do everything the way we tell you, you will be safe from now on. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so the so the traumatized brain or the chaotic brain or where emotional dysregulation is going crazy right now, 
the mind wants to go back to something that it possibly felt safe with. Yeah. And in fact, what's happening is people are going back to abusers right now. Yeah. They're going back to abusive situations in religion. And it's mm. it's scary because, of course, what they're going to come out of it with is even more trauma than they had before. Wow. And that's it's so interesting because um, I, I shared the Duluth wheel um, in, a, in a previous mm -hmm. right. conversation on here like it. Um, the Duluth wheel is something that shows these these dynamics of control as being far more than physical, um, and yet we can kind of tell ourselves that you know if if I'm physically safe, then this is not abusive. Um, and when it comes to <laughs> um, when it comes to a lot of experiences, like we're told that the gospel is the good news of Christ, but it seems mm -hmm. like the uh, the church can often wield um, a gospel of kind of fear and, um, you know, compliance. <laughs> and I, I laugh so. because that's my nervous tick, I suppose. It's the least funny thing in the world. The fear yeah. that you can face when you look around and things are looking pretty apocalyptic. Um, right. So how do we, how do we, now, now leaving is bloody hard work mm -hmm. um you can lose that, that fear of losing community of losing these friends that have kind of been promised as being forever and it is all right. of this like how am i going to mm -hmm. exist in the world outside this group that i've been part of right. um people do survive leaving church and people right. do rebuild their lives don't they completely and yeah. and one of the things that so if you're going to leave community one of the priorities has to be creating new community you can't, because one of the things, and you, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, so much about the Duluth Wheel. One of the things that Duluth Wheel emphasizes is that groups use isolation. So when you, when you start to pull away from a community that you uh, believed in, that was really the center of your life, they mm -hmm. will, they'll use the coercion and threats and intimidation and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. But one of the things they use is isolation. They'll basically say, none of us are going to talk to you. Yeah. You, we're, we're not going to let you uh, control us. We're not going to, uh, they'll use financial uh, um, uh, coercion yeah. at that point saying, you know, we were paying part of your rent, now we're not going to pay it. And all yeah. of the things that go along with that. And so what I suggest to people at that point is find uh, even if it's a small group, even if it's an online group of people that you can pour mm. out your heart to and say, how can I survive this? And you're going to find people who've gone through what you have. And at that mm. point, you begin to you begin to count on them to inform you. Now, the problem, of course, with people who've gone through complex PTSD, like a lot of people yeah. with religious abuse, is that they tend to glom onto other people too quickly. They tend yeah. to trust people too quickly because they said, I, this person understands the trauma I went through. I, I should just go and be part of their group. And often what happens is they become victims of narcissists at that point, of, mm -hmm. of abusers and users, even even online groups where they start getting intimidated by the group. So what yeah. I suggest is you do it carefully, but maybe listen to podcasts like this, read some books, and then find some people that seem, uh, as, as, the, as the Gospel of Matthew calls, people of peace. Find a person yeah. of peace, somebody who doesn't use you, that doesn't expect too much from you, but is willing to listen to your story. And that that mm -hmm. goes a long way in keeping you out of going back to those things. Right. That's um, really great to hear because I, I kind of, upon my own journey of, of leaving a group that... Um, left left some very real marks on me um, and that mm -hmm. these are not stories I wish to tell but um, one thing was reclaiming my right to navigate my own approach to faith mm -hmm. I had to kind of leave this idea that my faith and the way I practiced it had to be prescribed by somebody else um, mm -hmm. and there was a there was a time where I had to navigate reconnecting with who I am as a person and and mm -hmm. keep in mind this was a, a group I'd been in since childhood so I had to kind of sit with this and I had to navigate that loss of community um, mm -hmm. and navigate reconnecting with community I chose to do that within a Christian context mm -hmm. um, I went to another church which um, and I'm just about to move towns so kind of no longer going to that church and wondering whether I will reconnect with the church um, straight away 
But that moment of sitting and reconnecting with my core self and Mm. realizing that it is my job to navigate how I carry out my faith and how I develop my ethic and my way of my values and interacting with the world. And it was daunting as heck. Is this something that you you help people with through um, through trauma counselling or through you know Absolutely. the work you do? What right. advice can you give? <laughs> okay, so uh, it sounds you use the the word core self, and that mm-hmm. that whole concept of self actualization, that idea that as I'm growing up, as I'm be- being part of a religiously uh, abusive group, I lost part of myself. Mm-hmm. This this is what happens yeah. to people. They external forces, people, structures, ideas, even this idea of dominionism. Uh, mm-hmm. Even God can be used that way. I, I'm not saying that God does this, but I'm saying people yeah. can use God as one of the as one of the uh, fulcrums that they they get you wedged into their belief system. And so, what I suggest at that point is do whatever it takes and i suggest trauma therapy is the number Mm -hmm. one way to do it uh, to get to the place where you you discover your core self again you get back to your core self you begin to negotiate with those parts of yourself that uh befriended the uh abusive structures the abusive people Mm -hmm. and and renegotiate with those parts of yourself that did that and say we're not doing that any longer uh and and going back to those parts of you that were wounded and beaten down and uh, controlled and uh, unburden them, get them to the place where they're no longer reacting every time somebody tells you what to do. You know. Yeah. So in trauma therapy, especially internal family systems, I I think finding your your true self, your genuine self, as other groups call it is the key. I think that's really where it comes down to. And that means confronting elements of your own psyche mm-hmm. that allied with the people that were abusing you. Yeah. And I think one thing that um, that people often say is that religion can be a crutch for, mm-hmm. the, for that people need to lean on. And, and other people ask, you know, why do people join or stay in toxic groups? Um, and, and part of me thinks that it's, you know, and, and there is research to suggest that they're not dumb people that do this. They're often no. intelligent people. And it comes from a place of viewing the world and going, oh, my goodness, this is such a dumpster fire. And then mm-hmm. someone sweeps in who can kind of, who has that charismatic personality and often a narcissistic personality as psychology mm-hmm. today um, has written in a number of articles, um, right. who seems to wrap the world up in this neat little bow that says if you uh, if you behave this way, if you engage mm-hmm. with this truth, if you're part of our group, you're safe. Um, and we can kind of hand off part of our own personal agency in, or in exchange oh, yes. for that perception of safety. So it can be really terrifying letting go of that, can't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, well it, it can. And, and let me, mm. if I could, let me give you from a psychological point of view how this works. Is um, uh, Dr. William Glasser, who is the founder of uh, Choice Theory School, mm-hmm. says that every human being has five basic needs. And, I, and he, he says these are the order in which we experience them. And just as an aside, he actually yeah. drew all five of them from the story in Genesis, uh, Genesis 2 and 3 of Adam and Eve's creation. And he said, oh. out of that story comes these five basic needs. So let me just, if I could, I take a moment and just go Absolutely. through them. Absolutely. Okay. So he said, above everything else, the, the number one basic need we have is for safety and security. Mm-hmm. If that need is not being met, you can throw all the other needs out right now. If, if my house is on fire, yeah. it doesn't matter if I don't think I'm being loved by my girlfriend. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to get out of the house, right? I'm not even going to yeah. think about it. Mm-hmm. But he said the interesting thing about safety and security, if your safety and security needs are being met, you hardly ever think about them. Yes, yes. And so what, what often happens it, when somebody enters into a cult or uh, when they enter into an abusive group of any kind, often what, I mean, unless they were born into it, but I mean, if they, Mm. if they came into it, it usually was during a time in their life when they felt very unsafe and very insecure. Mm -hmm. And, And the group gives them this sense of enveloping safety. Yeah. We won't leave you. 
we're yeah. on your side we will take care of you and that is so appealing to someone yeah oh my goodness and, and really that's my story i don't know if i can take a moment to to share absolutely. that absolutely absolutely i my dad was an atheist my mm -hmm. my mother was a spiritist she used to channel spirits for people do readings for people wow uh, that's quite a combination right there <laughs> well it was and they they had an interesting detente they actually had an open relationship that we had a, we always had a number of different partners that lived with us mm -hmm. i didn't understand that i yeah. went through though uh, a horrible abuse uh, when I was eight years old, a, a sexual abuse when I was eight years old, a babysitter. Oh, um, also so found sorry. my dad's uh, pornography stash. And yeah. so by the time I was 11 years old, I was completely sexualized. And yet yeah. I was basically the only person in my age group that was, at least that I knew of. And so I, I became completely unsettled. The complex mm. PTSD was part of it. And what I began yeah. to do is just live in a dream world. And that dream world got very dark. And in that dark yeah. dream world, I started thinking suicide. So at age 12, I I uh, made my first suicide plan. By, wow. uh, by 13, I had uh, tried to carry it out the first time. Wow. And it was during that time that a religious group uh, came into my life. And they showed love, uh, on mm -hmm. genuine compassion and, and affection. I, I don't want to... Yeah say in any way that the that there was they were trying to use me because i don't think they were uh yeah. the group itself though was uh, i later learned was was very dominionist um yeah. they were very controlling and uh, legalistic but they they did show a lot of love to me and it was during that time that my dad got cancer and he passed away so oh. everything in my life revolved around them everything perfect revolved around storm them. wasn't it perfect it was storm. it was it was absolutely and i adored them yeah. And it was over the next five, six years that the, the abuse began to get worse. They began to tell me how to act, tell me how to live. And I broke away from them, but I didn't break away from the need to have a religious group um, give me safety and security. Mm. And uh, especially after my dad passed, yeah. I, I needed that. And especially male role models, I was constantly looking and there was... Uh, one man after another uh, moved me in the direction they felt I need to go. And that's actually how I became a pastor. Uh, I, I won't yeah. blame them for it, but I I was yeah. actually going to become a doctor. I was involved. I was in pre-med, um, yeah. getting pretty much a four-point average in pre-med. Wow. <laughs> and I had a, a man that was my mentor tell me, no, God's called you to be a pastor. Mm -hmm. I went, what? <sighs> And he said, you, this is the Bible college you're going to be going to, and I'll pay for your first yeah. semester. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> wow, goodness. That's, uh, that's big. Um, and it's, it was. It's, yeah. And, and so then 35 years you were a pastor, um, and it, like an inactive ministry. Right. Um, this, this is interesting. I'm a pastor's daughter. Mm -hmm. um, I no longer go to my father's church. Um, right. and, and my story is complex, and, and, and here's not the place to, that I'll talk about it. But um, right. looking at church is an interesting thing for me now because I look at, mm -hmm. um, I look at the whole ecosystem around the globe and I don't like what I see. Between the, on the one side, we've got this evangelical movement that's kind of trying to take over the White House, or in Australia, we've got our first evangelical um, prime minister, and there's been kind of Christian movements within politics. At first, there was all these micro parties, but they never got a seat in parliament, really. Or well, one party did Family First, and before that, mm -hmm. it was somebody else. But it was kind of like everyone wanted to be Jesus, and no one wanted to be the 12 disciples. So they didn't really <laughs> unite and form a big enough party to scoop up the votes. And then this guy, Corey Bernardi, came in and kind of galvanized them all together under the Australian mm -hmm. Conservatives, which is now defunct because the Liberal Party has got Scott Morrison. <laughs> Um, who is a Christian at the head of it. Oh, okay. So on the one hand, there's this, and then there's the Royal Commission into Child Sex Abuse, um, mm -hmm. which was really a damning time in the history of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've also got this movement towards independent churches. Mm -hmm. I don't know which one concerns me most. I still believe in Jesus. I still have mm -hmm. faith. I'm still a Christian. So do but I. I. Look at, but I look at church and go, 
how do we navigate this? Because on the one hand, we've got these power structures that are so easily corrupted and so easily hidden in, in with toxic people. And then on the other hand, you've got these independent churches that can so easily be a cult of personality around somebody who might be toxic. And, and we know that narcissistic personality disorder isn't often diagnosed yeah. <laughs> because, you know, and like, again, I'll cite psychology today that's talked about the kind of, um, the kind of people that um, often end up at the centre of toxic churches as having some of these um, right. these kind of personalities. And I'm not saying every independent church is bad. Definitely not saying that. Um, but oh, no. what I'm saying is it concerns me because on the one hand, you've got like on you've got one extreme, then on this other extreme, you can have a system that is very closed, very mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't have grievance procedures or restitution for victims or any closure or vindication or anything. Right. What's your take on it, <laughs> if I can ask that question? Well, and, and this was part of my deconstruction that started about 25 years ago. Mm. Uh, I had been working, I was, I was a trauma therapist at the same time as I was a pastor, and, and really that's too long a story to go into how that yeah. happened. But I, I tried pulling away from pastoring, and mm. this is going to sound like uh, some kind of posturing, but the churches I was in kept growing for yeah. a number of reasons. And so I couldn't pull out the way that I wanted to. And I ended up moving into a, a, a type of therapy where I actually worked with people who had been abused by pastors or church leaders. And oh, wow. one after another after another started coming to me. We, we ended up revealing a, an eva- a Canadian evangelist that had abused uh, 35 women in Montana. <sighs> and I, was, I, I had the uh, opportunity to expose him. And wow. to do do the counseling, the reason I knew about it was because I did the counseling with a number of his victims. Mm. Wow. But I began to devote myself to that and realize that the the way that we've structured churches is hierarchical, mm-hmm. of course, but it also is authority based. Yeah. And I, as I began to do that, I began to look at the Bible and say, okay, what happened between the Gospels? And the the epistles or the the, the later mm. books in the New Testament, and yeah. that actually got me to the place where I I began to question whether or not the absolute adherence to infallibility and inerrancy was actually helping us. And so, rather than doing that, I began to see what happens to what happens to human beings when when Jesus isn't there. And, and yeah. of course, we know that from the gospel. The first thing they started arguing about was who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> right soon as soon as he goes maybe he he went around the corner yeah. to get a you know sub sandwich or something comes back <laughs> and they're arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom and he yeah. tells him stop doing that it doesn't yeah. matter and, and he said you're not to call anyone master you're not to call anyone father you're not to do this and that and i can just see them nodding their heads yeah yeah okay we got that we're taking notes we got it all uh-huh. and then what the first thing they do is start creating structures and yeah. creating leaders and this person's a leader and that person's a leader and and jesus made it clear listen i'm calling you guys leaders only because you're the first but i'm going to yeah. show you what leadership looks like i'm going to wash your feet and i'm going to yeah. i'm going to absolutely abase myself before you that's the kind of leadership i want if there's any leadership i want you to be the kind of leaders that don't need to control anyone mm. But but you get into some of the you get into some of the epistles and by the time the epistles yeah. were written, all of a sudden you've got power structures and you know you have to obey this person and you have to obey that person and of course every <laughs> every century since then has been uh, even more dogmatic about who needs to be obeyed and how much they need to be obeyed and we have words you know that. That talk about authority and and so on and i look at it, i don't think i i think the reason jesus was wary of that is for the very reason you and i are wary of it mm. because yeah. there is no such thing as a human being that can resist the amount of power that is given to them in a church yeah. setting you can't it's impossible to do you cannot resist it that is uh that is a powerful picture, I think, and it reminds <laughs> it reminds me of Lord of the Rings. Maybe that was what J.R. Tolkien was getting at when he <laughs> maybe was. Uh, <laughs> maybe that was the allegory more than anything else. Um, but right. 
I think um, this is this is interesting because often in my kind of I, I have this fabulous small group that I go to mm-hmm. and. Um, Often we're kind of, there's so many different opinions in that group. Often the (laughs) the conversations are quite colourful and I love it. But one of these is the Apostle Paul. So much of the Bible, like so much of the New Testament Mm -hmm. is devoted to this guy. And I'm Mm -hmm. here saying, yeah, but he didn't walk with Jesus. No. And he was raised within a religious system that was power-based and that was Mm -hmm. rules-based. And yes, he had that beautiful flash of light on the road to Damascus. He had that beautiful conversion. But still the power structures is what I see in his writing. Oh, absolutely. And and especially when we start talking about, um, well, it seems like a time in history where a lot of our civil structures are being looked Mm -hmm. at. Um, Things like women's role in church, things like mm-hmm. LGBTQIA inclusion in church, um, things like, and of course, the Black Lives Matter movement, like oh all goodness. of this <laughs> kind of links to me. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that Paul was a racist, but he certainly had things to say about women and about, um, and, and seems to have things to say about people who didn't conform to a gender or sexuality structure, you know, of the day. Well, well here, so, here is an yeah. interesting take on that. Um, if, if you've read, if you've heard of the book by N.T. Wright, uh, Paul a biography uh, yes. in there in there he has an entire chapter where he the conclusion he basically comes to is this Paul knew nothing about Jesus even after his conversion he knew about him on the road but but yeah. that's a that's saying that Paul knew Jesus from his Damascus Road experiences is saying that it, it would be like saying that I knew about weather by because I got hit by lightning I mean it isn't <laughs> Okay. There's no, it's not analogous. And when you look at Paul's writing, what you see, other than Paul's theology of the resurrection, other mm. than Paul's theology of the resurrection, Jesus is really missing from most of his teaching. And that is so interesting because when we look at the church as a power structure, we see Jesus missing from that. Exactly. In I mean, if we can you imagine a church saying, we're not going to have any leaders, uh, we're going to try to just live out the way that he told us to live. And mm. hopefully uh, hopefully you do it. Hopefully I do it. We're going to be there to encourage each other. We're going to watch each other's feet. How does that sound to you? Mm. You know, some of the people are going to be outraged immediately. But you know what? Some of us are going to stand up and cheer. Yeah. And we're going to yep. say, you know what? I, I know I'm going to do it badly some days. That's okay. That's okay. Yep. Uh, we'll 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 sit in a round circle and we'll discuss how we might be able to do it better. Uh, and, and that always bothered the people that always bothers are the ones with authority. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Now I wanted to, um, I, I feel like I could talk to you for hours about so <laughs> many different topics, but I want to talk to you about one that is particularly, uh, emotive for a lot of Christians. Mm-hmm. You've blogged on it about the the need for a new Christian sexual ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, in my, my experience, a lot of my peers left the church around the age that they started mm-hmm. dating because mm-hmm. there was this purity culture emerging and well there was, you know it always existed you know back in the right back in the 50s and 60s or don't touch anywhere in the swimsuit area and then we had josh <laughs> harris who's <laughs> who wrote i kiss standing goodbye and that was kind of the bible that i grew up on but then right. we've got people who you know we're trying to to live our best christian life mm-hmm. um and the bible isn't really given us any um any culturally relevant or culturally contemporary directives on this, the church is giving us a lot of fear. If you stuff up in this area, you're screwed for life, basically, or, you know, there'll be consequences and and all of this kind of stuff. And there can be a lot of fear around this and perhaps even a lot of trauma around this when Mm -hmm. people walk away from the church and Mm -hmm. find themselves you know, trying to set up their families or trying to deconstruct their sexuality or their gender identity. And there can be a lot of fear around this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like I was just talking to somebody the other day who's in a beautiful relationship. Um, and there's this moment of, am I allowed to enjoy this? Mm-hmm. Um, because it doesn't line up with what I was told I was allowed to do. Right. How do you, how do you help people through that? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> Juggernaut. <laughs> the, well, I will do my best. 
Okay, mm-hmm. so I've got to lay a couple of, uh, of um, foundational principles. And this one's hard for a lot of people to accept, but once they begin thinking about it, they realize it's true. The entire Bible was written by people who believed in male patriarchy to the extreme. Yeah. There was no such thing as uh, female rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, daughters were property. Wives yeah. were property. Uh, if there was respect for a mother, it was only because the father uh, um, basically enforced it. Mm-hmm. And what it comes down to is when you look at the at the societal rules for sexuality in the Old Testament, let's start with the Old Testament. The societal rules for, for sexuality in the Old Testament, the, the rule was this. Women, when they got married, had to be a virgin. Mm-hmm. The Bible literally, literally says nothing in the Old Testament about men being virgins. Not one thing. Yeah. <laughs> Not a single thing. You can wow. search to, to, and I've done this. I, I've taught pastors' conferences, and I say, gentlemen, find me because it's always gentlemen. Find me yes. a place in the Old Testament <laughs> where it says that men had to be virgins, and and they're yeah. just they just assume that it's there, so they go looking, and and for the rest of the conference, you know, they'll come up to me and say, "What are we going to do with this?" I said, "Here's what we do with it. <laughs> we we start with the understanding that all of the sexual mores that are." put forward in the Old Testament, starting with that, are based on male patriarchy and they have nothing to do with sex. They have to do with inheritance. Mm. The reason that women had to be virgins was so that the first child born of that man, it was assured that he was the father and not someone else. Right. That is so I mean, I, I'm not saying something that hasn't been said by a hundred different commentators, yeah. conservative and liberal. But the reason it isn't taught in church be- is because they said, well, if that's the case, then that opens the door for sexuality to be practiced by anyone in any situation they want to. I said, no, it doesn't. So now let's look at the New Testament. Mm-hmm. The New Testament actually does not have... Um, a prohibition against extramarital sexuality except for adultery. Okay. Now people people will challenge me and say, no, wait a second. What about what about the word immorality? Yeah. And because that's kind of a general term. It means basically anything, any sexuality that we say it is. So yeah. that's <laughs> usually how it's treated. But I won't I won't get into that. The the word immorality is the Greek word pornea. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the anytime you want to see the meaning of a word you look at it how it's used in context in the Bible, but you also look at it how it is used in context outside of the Bible because it was a very common word. Right. And and it's it's used something like fourteen thousand times in other in extra biblical literature. Okay. There is not Didn't a sing- that. there's <laughs> not a but it's a very common word because it was a very common practice. And the practice, pornea, the we get the word pornography from it. Yeah. Pornea means prostitution. Oh. And it means to have sex with a prostitute. Right. That's okay. all it means. So so what if you took the word immorality and you inserted the idea of sex with a prostitute? Would that change the meaning of a lot of those verses? So many. So many. Most of them. <laughs> so okay. so what I what I've told people is let's not start from a point of view that says sex is wrong what if we start from a sex positivity that is the idea mm. that sex in and of itself is not wrong what we do with it can be and that's where a lot of people who yeah. are more conservative than this say oh, okay well that's all we're doing I said no 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 yeah. that's not what you're doing yeah. i said then we need to look at what are the real issues revolving around sexuality and the issues as far as i'm concerned and we've seen this especially in the last half a century the issues mm. involve uh, honesty and integrity that is, if I am married to someone and I've said I'm going to be faithful to them, I remain that. I don't. Yeah. There are very few people, whether they're religious or not, who won't agree with that. Yeah, yeah. But I said an even bigger principle is the principle of consent. Yeah. And, huh. every, and, and not just consent, but knowledgeable consent. That is, you, you don't have sex with someone who doesn't understand what's going on. Right. You don't, that it is also free consent. That is, you don't have sex, you don't have sex with someone who is not free to consent. That is somebody mm-hmm. who is too young, somebody who is under the control of another person, for instance, a pastor. Yeah. I, I've, I, I tell people over and over again, pastors do not have affairs. Pastors, mm. pastors commit sexual assault. If a person is under yeah. their authority and control and that person has sex with them, that is sexual assault. 
Wow. I, that I haven't heard it phrased that bluntly, but I so agree because of the power structure, because mm-hmm. of the, yeah. Okay, so this raises so many questions for me. I bet me. it does. <laughs> First of all, I guess it's a confirmation that um, just because we're creating, uh, just because the, the biblical kind of, you know, biblical literalism hasn't really served us in terms of creating a healthy sexual ethic in the 20-whatever century we are. <laughs> right. It doesn't mean that it's just a laissez-faire kind of do-with-it-what-you-want oh, thing. No. We, we still, as Christians, have to keep our hearts, you know, pure before God and still right. have to act with integrity towards ourselves and others and mm-hmm. towards our families and, the, you know, all, all of that stuff. Right. But the other question that this raises for me is around uh, more patriarchy and biblical literalism. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. How much of this, like, I've heard it said that egalitarianism, that is the belief that all people, all colours, all genders, all sexual identities were equal before God. Um, I've heard it said that that is a response to culture and then a Mm -hmm. counter-argument to say that complementarianism or the belief that men and women are equal in value but not equal in authority and Mm -hmm. function in the church, Mm -hmm. that is also a response to culture because if we look Mm -hmm. at the Bible, women are property, men are the boss. Right. If that's the Bible, shouldn't that be what we're living (laughs) <laughs> and right. this is so, a horrible question for me to ask as a feminist, but I want to learn. <laughs> no, no, and I, it's, a, it's a valid question. And it, it really is at the very base of what we do with the Bible. And of course, I, I don't have the definitive answer. Nobody does, but I'll give you my answer. So mm-hmm. one of the turning points for me was, was um, Numbers 31. And yeah. I challenge people to read Numbers 31 because it's disturbing at the very least. And... And it can be soul-crushing at the worst because in that chapter, God tells the Israelites to go and conquer a people, uh, a tribe, to kill all the men, to kill all the women who have had sex in their life, that is all the mothers, essentially, and to create sex slaves out of all the young girls. Well, that's nasty. Yeah, and then when they come back and they didn't do all that, then God tells them to go back and finish the job and kill the rest that were still alive. Then he gives them carte blanche to basically have sex with all these girls as slaves, not as wives, but as slaves. So you look at that and you say, okay, what's going on here? What are we to take away from that? And if, if we are to accept a biblical literalism for, for issues of sexuality, then we have to conclude that this kind of behavior by men is at least tacitly approved by God. In fact, even more so was commanded by God. What's even more interesting, Oof. for instance, is looking at David and Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I personally believe that, that David raped Bathsheba, regardless of whether she went along with it. She had no right to say no. He was yeah, the he king. Was the king. He was the king, yeah. yeah. But but I, what's really curious about that scene is, is is not that, but it's when the prophet Nathan comes to David. And here's what the prophet Nathan says to David. He says, he, he basically says, you are the man. He points his, you know, we can hmm. see the prophet's bony finger pointing at him. Yeah. And says, you took Uriah's wife as your own to do with as you want with her, right? Yeah. And basically... He doesn't even name Bathsheba. He just calls her Uriah's wife. In other words, Uriah's property. But yeah. then he goes on and he said, he said, I've given you wives and concubines. This is what he says. I've given yeah. you wives and concubines. I've given your master, that is Saul's wives and concubines. So apparently David not only had his own wives, but he also had sex slaves of Saul's wives and concubines and then he said and if you'd ask me i would have given you even more this is the prophet who is speaking to david and wow. david is a man after god's own heart so yeah if we're going to talk about sexuality i'm not talking about the issues of inerrancy and infallibility and so on and so on All the, yeah. obviously people can make up their own minds about that but what i'm yeah. saying is patriarchy had so infiltrated everything yeah. that 
it even colored the way they believed that God was speaking to them. Because we, there's no way in this on this planet I can believe that God sanctioned sex slavery. No. And if there's a person out there who believes that, then I have nothing more to say to them. So what yeah. I have to conclude is that this was the way that they interpreted what God was saying to them because they had a patriarchal filter. What yeah. if we take the patriarchal filter away from the Bible? What if we assume that these verses, Old Testament or New Testament, that are built upon a structure of patriarchy are not actually how God feels? Mm. then we have to start with an ethical point of view. Then we have to yeah. start saying, what are the other principles in Scripture? Obviously, uh, the the ability and the right of the individual to set their own boundaries and freedoms for their life has to yeah. be tantamount. And therefore, yeah. I believe that the number one principle that the Bible teaches us is consent. Yeah. That, we, that we need to have respect for each other's uh, consent over their own bodies, Mm -hmm. uh, consent over their own sexuality, consent over their own relationships, and that we need to that consent needs to be continually given. For instance, yeah. I, I've I've said to husbands and wives that marital rape is still rape. Yeah, you should not assume that because you've been married for five years that a husband has a right to have sex whenever he wants. Yeah. If his wife says no, no means no. Yeah. So, so when I look at the ethics, the biblical ethics, I see, I see three. Number one, honesty and integrity. Yeah. Number two, I believe that we have to have uh, consent has to be given freely and with knowledge and, mm -hmm. and continuously. And number three, that we need to act lovingly towards each other. That means that we don't take advantage of each other, that we don't manipulate and control each other. And I believe yeah. part of that is listening to the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit says, I want you to live celibate for this period of time, that we obey that. Yeah, yeah. And that um, can be, you know, a challenge for people if, if sex oh, sure. and sexuality um, takes an unhealthy point in their life. Now, I just want to, I just want to talk about the word consent a little bit because I was, I was chatting to a, a friend who is a, a way deconstructed uh, <laughs> ex evangelical. <laughs> um, she's, yeah, she practices other religion now, but mm -hmm. she uses the word spiritual consent. Mm -hmm. And I think this brings us back to the topic that we started and intended to talk about, and that was religious trauma we often don't realize that we should have the ability to give consent when it comes to the advice that other people give mm -hmm. us, the directives mm -hmm. that other people give us, when it comes to how we live our lives. Exactly. And what I've, from a lot of my readers from the blog and and people that have kind of spoken to me since, since my own story became known in my kind of wider circle, mm -hmm. um, has been that they didn't feel that through their, through their own churches, wherever they were, or their own kind of relationships with religious parents or whatnot, right. is that there was always a sense that you had to obey the pastor, you mm -hmm. had to obey the Bible. Oh if goodness. you disobeyed God, then your life went from this kind of gold standard, A-plus kind of plan to this mm -hmm. kind of B-minus, and then we're kind of, you know, the, the more we stuff up, the more we are, or the more we act in a way other than this great grand perfect plan of God, the mm -hmm. more our lives just turn to trash or so that's a threat <laughs> um and again laughing is a nervous tick not because that's <laughs> funny because it's the least funny thing in the world relating with your life prospects from a position right. of fear and when bad things happen thinking is this the judgment of God when we come to deal with our religious trauma Mm -hmm. What advice do you give people in terms of taking back that area of, I guess, spiritual consent Absolutely. or decision-making consent and, and power? Yeah. So, I, so I come back to learning about your core self, learning to mm -hmm. have an authentic self, knowing who you are. One of the things they, they teach therapists is that you don't have the right to just speak anything you want in terms of advice into a person's life. So one of the things yeah. I do with my clients is I ask their permission before I speak anything of even close to advice into their life. And I'll say, do I've I have your you permission? I've you do that over the course of this call too. <laughs> right. It just yeah. becomes so natural for me yeah. to do it. The same yeah. thing would be true of somebody, for instance, if I was speaking to someone who is, is an atheist, and I said, I have a, a spiritual viewpoint on this. Do I have your permission to speak into that? And yeah. if they say no, I say, well, thank you. I appreciate you exerting your consent on this, yeah. and I respect that. Yeah. I believe that 
even even Jesus, when when he spoke to people, one of the things that he was always doing, you know, for instance, there was a guy at the pool of Siloam, and instead mm -hmm. of just healing him, he came up to him and said, "What do you want?" He said, "Yeah, uh, what what is it you're asking for?" And he he made the person, or I shouldn't say he made them, but he he put them in a position where they could ask Jesus for something instead of just telling them what yeah. they needed. Yeah. Okay. So I had a thought and it fell mm -hmm. out of my head and I'm going to retrieve it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess when people are kind of sitting in this space mm -hmm. of, of maybe they've walked away from church and maybe they're working through their own religious trauma, right. um, being able to kind of take back the ability to say no to anything mm -hmm. is a big deal. It's huge. And it often exists alongside another primal human need, and that is for connection with other people. Right. So when, and you mentioned this in the beginning, intentionally creating community, mm -hmm. doing this in a healthy way, keeping this front of mind while you get to know yourself and while you get to form your worldview is actually something really um, mm -hmm. important. Um, do you have tools that you can use to kind of help people like develop that core self and, and kind of work through it in a structured way? Because it can be very kind of like, oh, I've just deconstructed. Oh, I've just walked away from church and community. <laughs> and I think I still believe in God, but like, holy cow, who am I? <laughs> well, I, I, think, does, yeah. I think trauma therapy is very important. Yeah. Going back and deconstructing and reconstructing some of the the system in internal family systems for instance we believe that every person doesn't even matter if they have trauma every person mm -hmm. creates an internal system by which they they have learned to deal with the challenges that they meet in life and yeah. everybody's internal system is different though there are mm -hmm. some similarities of course and so what we do in internal family systems is we help the person come to realize that they actually have parts of themselves that are taking over without permission and they okay. need to teach those parts of their psyche to respect consent and yeah. we actually do that for instance the most common part that people have is a shame part. The shame part mm. is usually developed when we're around three or four years old, and it wasn't developed to shame us. It was developed to instruct us. For instance, we yeah. little children, shame works well because we say, no, you did that wrong. Yeah. Uh, the little child listening to an authority figure says, oh, I want to do it right. So yeah. at, over time, they develop a part of them. Instead of making other people say that to them, they say it to them. And, yeah. and while they're a child, it, it doesn't usually cause a lot of problems. What's yeah. happening, though, by the time they get to be a teenager and adult, that shame part now is taking over. And it's mm. calling, calling them names. It is, it is causing them to feel depressed over things that they've failed yeah. at. And, and that part never recognized that your core self grew up. It still thinks yeah. you're four or five years old. So in, in internal family systems, we meet with that shame part and, and we ask it, to, to start obeying. For instance, one of the things that happens with all of our psych, inner psyche parts is they take over our body. We have anxiety parts that, that start um, using the vagus nerve to, to the, the, the dorsal part of the yeah. vagus nerve to shut us down. And so what we teach our clients to do is to actually talk to that part and say, will you leave my body, please? Leave my body alone. Stop controlling it. Stop controlling yeah. my emotions. Back off. Yeah. And, and it's amazing. Within 20, 30 seconds, that part will back off. Wow. The other thing that I suggest to people is if they're going to be part of a new community, that they instruct the new community what they're working through. For instance, yeah. it, would, it could sound like this. I have come out of a cult. Mm -hmm. uh, I... I listened to people and I just accepted whatever they told me. I'm learning right now to be questioning. I'm learning mm -hmm. to force people to ask my permission. So if I do any of that, please don't take offense at it. I don't mean to say yeah. that you're untrustworthy. So so actually yeah. setting up your community for success. Yeah. And I think, um, and, I, and we need to draw this interview to a close, sadly, because... There's so much left to talk about, I feel. <laughs> I, th I think there's a few important things in here. One is that in these uncertain times, um, your your need to return to safety is mm -hmm. a primal need. It comes mm -hmm. right back from the beginning. So that need 
needs to be acknowledged, yes. but met in a healthy way. It doesn't mean Correct. returning to systems that are abusive or that were toxic to you. Right. Um, another thing that we need to, to note and I'm such a huge advocate of this message, is that therapy is good. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> find a good therapist. I think it's something to that we should just all do as humans mm-hmm. because we're all interacting with life and it's complex. <laughs> right. um, so I think a good therapist is a wonderful thing, but especially if you have left a, a group that was toxic for you, that was unhealthy for mm-hmm. you, or in a more extreme uh, version was actually a cult. And I think a third message is that as you navigate your way forward in in faith or in creating your own new ethic when it comes to life and love and spirituality and sexuality and work and career and all of those things is the importance of consent, Mm -hmm. is that you get to be in the driver's seat here. And we've been taught right from the get-go to surrender all to Jesus. Mm. Yes, but Jesus was the leader who washed his disciples' feet. Exactly. So, gosh, thank you, Mike. That was an amazing interview. We covered a lot of territory. Oh, gosh, we sure did. And um, (laughs) I dare say it's not going to be the last interview. I'll just have to control myself and space things out before I go, hey, come (laughs) and talk to me again. Um, Look, uh, yes, thank you so, so much. Thanks for having me. it's yeah look look after yourself and um i am thinking of you and praying for you as all of this crazy dumpster fire that is 2020 Mm. um carries on but especially during this moment of civil upheaval thank you and to my listeners um i hope you've enjoyed this i certainly enjoyed doing this interview so tune in again next time i'm kit kennedy this is unchurchable